I would see smiling faces, but with masks I can't, so smiling eyes. When I was first asked to give a message on a chapter from the book of Revelation, my mouth said, oh, I'd love to. And my heart said, help. I don't want to share about the end times. As I began to pray about this feeling, I realized my heart was responding to how I had heard some others share about certain chapters in the book. I'm not saying that these preachers were at fault, but there was something I was missing. Either they weren't saying it, or I wasn't hearing it. As I thought about it, I realized I'd always read the book in little bite-sized pieces, and doing so, I'd lost the focus that is there from the very first verse in the very first chapter of the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And what is going to occur is far more than just disasters. Does anyone here still read, use a telephone directory? A few of you. Well, the directory used to be fantastic. You'd run down a list of names until you found the person you wanted. And there was their address and their phone number as clear as day. But then, in the interests of economy, they decided to reduce the size of the directory. And to do so, they reduced the size of the print. So unless you had exceptional eyesight, which you will realize I haven't, the result was you needed a magnifying glass to use it. But magnifying glasses have one big drawback. They only increase a small size, small part of the page. Reading the book of Revelation can be a bit like reading a phone directory with a magnifying glass. Keep our eyes focused on one bit and we're fine. If we move the glass just a bit, we can see another part of the page clearly. But if we move too quickly or too far, we lose sight of where we were. In other words, when we look at some parts of the book of Revelation, we need to be careful that we don't lose sight of Jesus and the Father. Jesus revealed these events to John so that we might know what was to occur. But the temptation is for us to start to focus on all these negative things. And we need to keep in mind that these catastrophic events are only the prelude to the second coming of Christ and a new Jerusalem. 
In Revelation 6, we read how Jesus, referred to as the Lamb, was the one who was opening the seven seals of the scroll. As each seal was opened, a fresh calamity came onto earth. But instead of heeding the warnings, we read, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks and called for protection from the wrath of the Lamb. After an interlude of chapter 7, which Howard had been going to speak on today, it speaks of those who are faithful to God. And Revelation 8 begins with Jesus opening the seventh and final seal of the scroll. Here in Central, you've been predominantly looking at the series in order. But I would still recommend you go back and read Revelations again in its entirety, particularly from uh, chapter 4. Let us pause a moment and just reflect how in chapter 6, Jesus is described as a lamb, perhaps the most gentle animal of all. Yet those on earth were afraid of his wrath and tried to hide. To those who know his salvation, he is gentle, forgiving, loving, and we have no need to fear God's judgment. Our sins have been paid for by Jesus' death. As we look at today's reading, we need to keep in mind that if we, have, if we know his salvation, we do not need to fear these tribulations. As we turn to chapter 8, we read how the seventh seal is opened and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Just imagine how that would make us feel. Some of us have difficulty with silent prayer for two or three minutes and we're waiting for the, the leader to say amen or lead us into the Lord's prayer. And just imagine if the pastor stood up here and there was silence. It would get our attention. The half hour of silence probably is a period of time rather than an actual 30 minutes. It's rather like in the Bible, there's the term 40 days, which conveys an idea of a period of time. After the period of silence, seven angels were past trumpets, and another angel came before the altar with a golden censer of incense, together with the prayers of God's people. The smoke of the incense and the prayers went up before God. Then the angel filled the censer with fire from the altar and hurled it to earth, and the earth responded with thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. Throughout the Old Testament, we read how important the use of incense was in worship. There are precise instructions how to make it and how it was to be used. 
It was the physical image of the prayers of God's people, weight wafting up to God in heaven. Psalm 141 verse 2 says, Let my prayer be accepted as sweet-smelling incense in your presence. And here in Revelations 4, that picture is echoed. The smoke from the incense went up from the angel's hand to God, along with the prayers of the peoples. We can be assured our prayers matter to God. They are sweet-smelling like incense. Whether we are going through tribulation or moments of joy or peace, everything in life is an opportunity for prayer. We don't need fancy words. All we need is a heart that beats for God. God hears and he responds. We may not hear thunder and see lightning and experience earthquakes, but it doesn't mean that we haven't got every reason to expect prayer will be answered. The seventh seal to be opened revealed seven trumpets. Trumpets have been used for many cultures for many, many centuries before giving some sort of announcement or giving a warning of something about to happen. This chapter of Revelation describes the first four trumpets and what they heralded. There's lots of speculation around the book of Revelation and what all the symbolism means. There's certainly plenty of symbolism within the book. And in biblical times, the number seven was associated with perfection or completeness. But are these trumpets and what they herald literal or symbolic? God has a sense of order. So seven would be a logical number. But I believe they are also literal descriptions of real events, and we don't need to search for complicated and hidden truths. My reasoning comes from reading the book of Exodus, where it describes the 10 disasters sent on Egypt. The number 10 has special significance in the Bible of being complete and perfect. So for example, we see at the very beginning in this creation story, God said, and we hear it 10 times. Later on, we were given 10 commandments. But I equally believe that the disasters in the Egypt suffered were true events. The first was the Nile turning into blood. Then there were plagues of frogs, gnats, flies, lice. Then a plague that killed livestock. Another of festering boils on humans. Next there was hailstorms. 
then a plague of locusts, three days of darkness, and finally the death of the firstborn. The scholars that think none of them happened because there are no writings from Egypt that confirm the Bible. But we need to remember that most ancient civilizations tended to record their victories, not their defeats. But if you're like me and millions of others, you'll have few doubts that God did in fact send those disasters on Egypt. Not symbolic ones, but real ones. While many can be brushed off as natural phenomena, how do you brush off that number in the time frame unless you put God in the equation? You could go through the Bible and pick out all sorts of events and start to question whether there's concrete evidence. Was Joseph a real person? Did he really get thrown into jail in Egypt? Did he rise to a position of authority? We all have a choice. We either dismiss the Bible as some sort of collection of fairy tales, or we dare to believe and accept there are parts of the Bible that we're going to just have to take on trust. The other week, I read this quote, which sums up my stance. When common sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So my approach to the rest of chapter 8 in the book of Revelation is to take what is written in a straightforward, literal way. And we've heard that the first trumpet heralded God's judgment on earth. When the first angel sounded his trumpet, there was hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down to earth, and a third of the trees and the green grass was burnt up. I'm sure that everyone here remembers the devastation of the wildfire fires in Australia in the summer of 2019 and 20. There was 186,000 square kilometres of land burnt. 6,000 buildings were destroyed. Half of them were somebody's home. At least 34 people lost their lives, as did an estimated three billion animals, most of which were reptiles. As horrific, as horrific as those fires were, they did not engulf one-third of Australia. We cannot be sure when John says he saw one-third of the world being burnt up, did he mean the world as we know it today, or the world that was known to him, which would have been the Mediterranean area? Again, we don't know. But what we do know 
is that it was a catastrophe far greater than that black summer in Australia. The second trumpet heralded God's judgment on the sea. John described something like a mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of its living creatures died and a third of the ships destroyed. Many have speculated whether this refers to either a meteor or a nuclear bomb. It could even be a massive volcano emerging, which would explain the fire. But what it is, isn't of great importance. John is describing something like a mountain. He's talking about something huge and solid. Likewise, did the sea look like blood or was it turned into actual blood? Again, it is not important. What is, is that whatever happened had a devastating effect on the sea sea life, and men directly involved in it. The third trumpet heralded God's judgment on fresh water. When the third angel blows his trumpet, something like a comet fell from the sky, and a third of the rivers and springs and the waters became bitter and poisonous. Comments have fallen on earth in the past. And we can expect they will fall again. Many experts believe that it was a comet falling on earth that led to the dinosaurs becoming extinct. We're well used to thinking of environmental impact these days. But imagine a sizable comet falling on earth and what it would mean. Widespread destruction, similar but by far larger than any bomb could produce. Massive dust clouds would circle the earth for years, blotting out the sun so temperatures would plummet. Plants and animals would lose their natural habitat. Then, Imagine the watercourses, polluted with dust, rotting vegetables, and dead animals. This isn't environmental impact on the same scale as we experience in today's world, where we put up signs to warn that water is unsafe to drink or for swimming, and where, with good management, we can reverse the damage. The fourth trumpet heralds God's judgment on celestial lights. When the fourth angel blows his trumpet, a third of the sun, moon and stars turn dark. A third of the day and the night was without light. 
I don't know about you guys, but I have a vegetable garden. And I can grow things in it all year round. But my July garden is very different from my January garden. In winter, I can grow brassicas, but the carrots seem to sit in the ground for weeks and do nothing. Courgettes, they've long gone. As for strawberries, well, they're a distant memory. If we lost a third of our daylight every single day, our summer would be like our winter is now. But consider what our winter would be. Our new winter would have no more than seven hours of daylight per day. And if you think that sounds bleak, think of Invercargill. They'd have five and a half hours of daylight a day. In the book of Revelation, we're forced to see both sides of God. We're all very familiar with coins. The first coins were struck in about 650 BC. And since then, nearly every civilization across the world has used some sort of coin. There's been big ones, little ones, ones with holes in, ones which are every shape but round. Historically, they were gold, silver, or sometimes bronze. Now, they're more likely to be some sort of alloy that has actual, no actual value. But they all have one thing in common. They have two sides. Over the last 40 or 50 years, there's been an increasing tendency to portray God as a God of love. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. He is totally loving. He cares for us as a father. But in focusing only on that side, it's like looking at a coin and never turning it over to view the other side. The book of Revelation makes us look at both sides of God. In Revelation 8, we see the God of justice and retribution. It's not very comfortable. Mankind will harvest exactly what we sow. Will Christians have to endure these hard times, or will they be spared? This is a huge question, and I don't, I don't have a simple answer. One line of thought is based on Revelation 3, verse 10, where it says, Because you have kept my word about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to, to the whole world. Some feel this points to believers being spared the things revealed in Revelation. Others 
quote Matthew 22, verses 29 to 31, where it says, after this tribulation, Christ will send out his angels to gather his elect. And that points towards all people that are alive at that time will suffer these things. Others, quote, other viewpoints include linking the prophecies here with those of Daniel. And they would suggest that believers suffered for about half of the time, about three and a half years. But I come down to one very simple thing. If believers have to suffer such things, then God will be there right beside them. Throughout the Bible, particularly in Psalms, there are verses that remind us that God will walk beside us. Although I must admit my personal favourite is found in Joshua 1 verse 9, where it says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The other side of the coin is our loving and merciful God. This is the side that so often people miss when they're reading this chapter. Each of the, in each of the judgments, one third was affected. A third of the earth was burnt, a third of the sea was turned into blood. A third of the fresh water became bitter and poisonous, and a third of the celestial bodies were turned dark. But note, in each case, two-thirds were spared. Even in his judgment, God was prepared to give more time for people to turn to him. This is an image of a loving and merciful God and one who has patience beyond belief. One God, two facets. The God of judgment and vengeance, the God of love and mercy. Over the next weeks, we'll be looking at further chapters of Revelation. And my prayer for us is that as we move that magnifying glass around the book to focus on other chapters, we never lose sight of the fact that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him so that we can be assured there will be a new order a new Jerusalem where God and the Lamb will have their throne among us.